This is an RNZ podcast. Last week, the UK-based Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism released what it proudly calls the most comprehensive comparative study of news consumption in the world. Its annual digital news report surveys 38 countries, though sadly New Zealand isn't one of them. And this year, a key focus was the news media making money, one way or another, from the online audience, which doesn't have to pay for news online if it doesn't want to, in the internet age. It's become clear in recent years that news media are only getting a tiny slice of online advertising. The online giants Facebook and Google gobble up the vast majority of that. And that's one reason why, as we've heard on Media Watch recently, the New Zealand Herald has just put up a paywall obliging online readers to pay for its premium content. And it's not the only one. The newsroom and politics sites also offer subscriber-only content. And the NBR runs online subscriptions too. And scoop.co.nz has survived for 20 years, in part on readers paying. Now, digital subscriptions are bringing in more money globally, said the Reuters Institute's digital news report for this year. And unveiling the findings for 2019 in a live online broadcast last week, the lead author, Nick Newman, said this. So firstly, we find uh, that more people are paying for news, but growth is still really focused just on a few big countries and a few big brands. And we're suggesting that the limits of existing subscription strategies may become clear in the next year or so. So there was some good news there, but one key question the Digital News Report asked was, is subscription fatigue now setting in? This shows uh, people who, who um, are, are using any kind of ongoing payment. So either you're paying for yourself or somebody else pays. And what we find here is that the vast majority are only prepared to pay for one subscription. And this is true for richer people, it's true for more educated people, and it's true in almost every country we look at. And if the same applies here in New Zealand, well, that possibly makes it a tough time for the Auckland-based outlet The Spin-Off to launch a new membership scheme, Spin-Off Members. Since it launched almost five years ago, The Spin-Off has got by on income from sponsors and from advertising, and more recently it scored some public funding for its multimedia and video projects. Now, they say it's the first scheme of its kind for a New Zealand media outlet, and unlike paywalls, this membership scheme will help keep the online content free for all, even those who don't sign up or pay up. And the proceeds from every dollar, they say, that's contributed by members will be devoted to creating new, high-impact New Zealand journalism. The spin-off is suggesting that members cough up $8 a month, but they can pay as much or as little as they want. And last Tuesday, the spin-off founder Duncan Grieve told Jesse Mulligan on RNZ National they want editorial input as well as money from their readers. The first batch of members will get a survey later this week which will we'll sort of list a few different areas of coverage that we'd like to do more of um, and we'll weigh members' views very heavily when we're deciding whether it's stories to commission or even journalists to hire. You know, for example... We would really like to have a a full-time science and climate change reporter. There isn't a commercial basis for that, but we think that it's a huge area of need. So essentially it's it's solving a a commercial problem that we have, have been unable to otherwise. Well, that sounds like a nice idea to build bonds with the audience, investing in the spin-off's future. But won't giving the paying members editorial input, on top of what the spin-off's commercial sponsors are paying for, complicate his business for possibly not that much more money in the bank? The commercial model that we were trying and testing at the start has got us this far, and 
But we've certainly come to a point where that idea of having a single headline sponsor in a particular section that made it sustainable, that is not proving as viable as we once did. What has replaced that is is a lot of campaign-style work. That means that ultimately the business is probably more sustainable and certainly less vulnerable than it was. Can you give us an example of what you would call campaign-style work? So Grant Thornton, uh, we did uh, budget coverage in collaboration with them. Um, They paid us a certain amount of money to basically, which facilitated us doing a a bunch of work on the budget, Um, you know, sort of feature writing, opinion columns and so on. All of that was labelled, brought to you by Grant Thornton, and then there were a few pieces from their partners, which we sort of worked on with them in collaboration, and that was labelled as partner content. And so that that was a sort of a six-week campaign that ran through the budget and allowed us to do something we would love to do but didn't have the resource. And that's where it is at its sort of... You know, at its best, where it facilitates us doing something that we would really like to do. I guess what we are looking to do with members is say it's limiting in the sense that your scope becomes what you can make a commercial case for. Mm-hmm. And in certain types of coverage, whether it's um, business coverage, which is sponsored by Kiwi Bank, there is a sort of a logical partner who is a, effectively a facilitator within that broad area of coverage. With other areas, there isn't such a a logical case to be made. So, you know, with science reporting or, say, social issues, it's not like there's a a big corporate who's really interested in creating more social issues. We have effectively, you know, decided to go to our readers and say, here's all the things that the spinoff does that it will continue to do. Here's a, you know, a suite of things that we would really like to do. And if you want to sort of help us be more sustainable and move into these these areas that where there isn't the same kind of commercial case for, consider becoming a member. And um, and the the example that you've given is you'd like to have a specialist reporter on climate climate change issues, etc. That, that's one of so we're going to survey our audience, and that's going to be part of. It won't be the the whole decision making process, but will be you know effectively a, a vote um, in that that we will will consider strongly. The, the advertising-funded era is in its twilight, and um, at least in the traditional sense. And if you were, you know, we've we've seen the what's happened to the likes of Vice and BuzzFeed, who who when they launched were predicated on the idea that you could get enough scale and then leverage that into uh, advertising, like you know, digital advertising revenue that would compensate for it. And there's just, you know, we we've never done that because it was so clear from the start that the numbers didn't make sense. Members isn't the same as subscription, but when all the research shows that giant Reuters report that came out a week ago talking about subscription fatigue already and that the vast majority of people only pay for one uh, digital media outlet that they want to pay for. Is that a worry for you that if people are going to pay for it, it might be just, just the one? No, it's not a worry for me. I mean, we, we launched on Monday. We're, we're just shy of 1,000. Sorry, on Tuesday, and we're just shy of 1,000 members as we record this on Thursday mornings. You know, we have a sort of a slightly different audience. You, you you never really know until you actually jump in the pool. But you have asked before, haven't you, with the, the long-form fund to fund longer, more in-depth journalism? With the War for Auckland as and, well. Yeah, so the War for Auckland, for people that don't know it, this is, I think, when the unitary plan was an issue. So Auckland's future, it's the layout design, planning of the city, big issue, and one that 
you know, certain generations seem not to be participating in. It was a really nice piece of that one of your people went to um, a couple of local meetings about it, so you couldn't see anybody under a certain age, you know, just making a judgment on um, the hair colour or lack of hair in the audience <laughs> amongst the blokes anyway. But um, the fact that a whole age group seemed not to be participating in this process. So having highlighted that problem, asked for money, what happened? I mean, that was that was probably the first real um, validation of this. This was, I think, 2016. Um, we had been around less than two years when we launched it, and we got $25,000 in 24 hours, which was, you know, it seemed like an unimaginably large sum. It's really not when you start to d- divide it up into... Um, you know, all the things that you need to, to do an area of coverage as complex as that and with as many moving parts as uh, as it had. But over two months, we, we did a podcast. We did these amazing data visualizations through, through Chris McDowell. We ran interviews and opinion pieces and feature writing. And But people wanted to give money to this? It was, well, the fact that we got that much out of what was then a much smaller audience in such a small, short space of time was validation for that, that if you could connect an issue and, and make it real for people. And I think there there is a strong sense that, you know, certainly in Auckland at the time that there were these things happening, um, you know, with, which were going to impact the city for decades that where there wasn't a, a voice or an argument being made for people who were going to be living it in decades. Time. It was very much you know, the, a, a classic NIMBY problem. And, um, you know, there was almost a visceral response from our audience to that. And that was you know, definitely part of the thinking that at some point we can make that case again in a more sort of uh, long-running way rather than just a, a single issue and, and campaigning on that. Now, there's a nice line in uh, the piece that you wrote uh, to announce the scheme. We want to listen as much as we speak. Um, <laughs> but, look, the media organisations are never democracies. You have editors deciding what goes on. Do you seriously want to be consulting paying members just to feel like you're connected and really serving them and have them influence what you cover and how? It sounds so corny, right? Um, but well, yeah. it just sounds complicated, you know. That yeah, uh, I mean, but, everyone wants to be connected to the audience, and of course, the internet allows us to do this. And audiences are connected and can feedback in ways that they never could before. But you still want editors deciding stuff because they know best, and that's their job. And do you really want to be? involving people paying $8 a month and in, in setting the agenda for Yes, we do. So I think right now, I think basically there was an era, and, and you just alluded to it, in, in media that was essentially everything up until sort of, call it 2010, until the social era, where the editor was the one true God. You know, they, they made decisions, they filtered those they're down through their sort of sort of department heads and into their writers and ultimately it was the most hierarchical top-down thing and they had immense amounts of power and they there was a an ability to feedback on that whether it was op-eds or letters to the editor but it was very controlled and you know I think over the last 10 years in the social web era people are feeding back constantly and you know while the editor is in control, I think there has been really good things out of being being able to to hear different voices. Really bad things too, because it's it's sort of incessant, and at times a particular critique can almost become a meme, and it's not actually well founded. It just sort of calcifies in the audience. But I think 
the thing that I really like about members is sometimes you can't tell the difference between someone who's functionally trolling you and someone who's got a genuine, who's a real audience member who loves your product but has a genuine critique here. And disentangling the two when it's all just this constant torrent on social media is quite difficult. What this does is sort of formalize and codify a way for people who are genuinely engaged with us, who are, have some kind of financial engagement with the spinoff, to to give us feedback through a particular channel. Right now, it's basically like a, a Google survey which will go out once every month or two and we'll ask them a series of questions. And it's not the only data point. Obviously, we'll still be have all our normal editorial processes. It's just an extra voice that functionally will represent a really engaged readership. And we can... It, it, it just sort of weeds out the... Or it creates a superset of people who... Uh, who I think we should value the the opinions of uh, more so than just the, the the constant incessant roar of social media, which which we all live with all but the time. But what if it becomes a, a micro version of that? As Jesse Mulligan pointed out in his interview with you earlier in the week, he talked about the uh, the Graylin Five Hundred. Uh, I don't know if they exist or not, but a group of people, Auckland based, connected, media savvy, that might be inclined to be members. A lot of them, if they become members, you make this promise, might want their point of view represented in the spin-off and be cheesed off if they don't get it, advocate for that. That's going to be annoying. Well, I don't think it's well, annoying for them or for us. Uh, for you, if you want to do things. and you know, Basically, if you have a small set of members who will feel they have the, the right or a channel directly to you, uh, they might all want their own identity issues represented or whatever. That, that, if you've made the promise that you'll respond to them because they're giving you some money. We made the promise that we'll we'll listen to them. We haven't made the promise that we will act on every single one of their sort of dictates. And that is also something that I said in the piece. And also, I think the idea that the spinoff only represents the sort of Ponsonby or Greyland 500, those two suburbs are currently warring over who possesses the the 500 uh, (laughs) moniker for now. But the, I think... You know, we, we got an email from Alex Bray got an email this morning in response to his bulletin from someone saying that they'd just joined up, and it was it was this very sweet email, and the person was ninety two years old, and they didn't live in Auckland, and so I think there's this there can be this idea, and we certainly have, um, can feel that way at times that there is this kind of inner city media comms kind of group that really sort of dominate the uh, the spinoff, but. I think, in, in fact, what we're starting to see is that um, there's actually a much broader demographic reading us than we think, and in some ways it might open us up. You know, Another person who's been in touch, because um, part of what we've asked is not just to, to survey them, but uh, our audience, but if you have an area of expertise and we might be able to call on you to background us on a particular area, that you can sort of say that you'd be willing to do that. And this person basically... They, they work in a particular area of business in Wellington. They're retired. You know, they're very much a, a commercial person. And you're like, well, that's not who you naturally think of as the spin-offs audience. So in some ways, it's almost the reverse of that. So like, they can identify themselves as someone willing to give up their expertise. Absolutely. Kind um, of like, almost like an organ donor tick on their membership. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the other thing is that, Right now, this is an absolute baby, you know, and it, it barely knows how to, to, to feed, let alone walk. But I'm so excited that we have this thing that's ours, that we can grow and evolve. And I have no doubt that it will that members in five years' time will be sort of light years away from this, far more sophisticated. And this is all opt-in. You know, you don't have to, by joining our membership, 
do anything. You don't even have to receive the book if if you don't want to. But if you you do want to participate in this a, a more sort of two way conversation, then we're sort of here for that. And and I think you know ultimately in time we might well have a, a members editor. And you know I think the this that's what's exciting. That's why I do still consider ourselves a startup. To go back to your original question, that because. I want to keep that energy of, of trying things and experimenting and, and evolving stuff rather than just saying, here is this thing, it's finished, and, and now we'll just sit back and watch it run. See how long it... Yeah, fair enough. But um, one interesting thing, though, in the frequently asked questions, um, businesses as members, you say, yeah, absolutely, if you want to be, we'll talk you through different levels to suit the scale of your business and uh, your desire to help. I mean, is this another level of this... Uh, kind of corporate sponsor type support as well because if, if businesses are joining up through this um, smaller level mainly designed for individuals is that another way that um, you might end up with you know corporate sponsors and things like that I mean hopefully <laughs> like we, we ultimately are running a business you know this this is not the media is not particularly subsidised no, in but New if, Zealand if, if businesses sign up to this partly on the promise that they'll have influence or input into your editorial decision making and channel to you that would complicate things too, wouldn't it? Well, I, I don't think that the, there would be any sense that you know their voices would be any louder than an individual's. So we kind of put that there ultimately because it's something that we are curious about seeing how it runs. You know, like obviously some businesses have have far a far greater ability to contribute than an individual, and that's why we, we've made the whole thing pay what you want. So if you can, you can become a member for a dollar a year, and that's fine, because for some people that it, that is very much all they can afford, and we don't want it to be exclusionary. That's why it's a membership program and not a paywall, because we want the content to be free. Mm. But the, but it might be that a business goes, I believe in the spin-offs co-popper, I want to support that. You know, We can afford to pay, say, $1,000 a year. It's not hugely meaningful to us, but we know it will be meaningful to them. So it's very much a, you know, they the... The business's participation won't be on the idea that there is a hierarchy of uh, volume to the voices that we hear, just that you can contribute commensurate to your ability to pay. And it's nothing they couldn't already do through press patron, for example, where they'd still set their own Yeah, or, well. or um, you know, much more sort of transactionally through through creating a content partnership with us. You know, it's it's just another avenue to do that that's a little bit more passive in some senses. You also wrote um, that our current model of content partnerships with commercial and governmental entities make certain f- forms of journalism easier to produce than others, um, which you talked about earlier, um, certain topics, I guess, not so easy to support. Um, but does it actually make some harder? Like, just as an example, um, Kiwi Bank is re- interested in active um, supporter of yours. Also, the newsroom site, which is, I guess, a similar sort of thing, mm. three years old or so now. Yeah. Um, also, Auckland-based startup dealing with news and issues. Uh, just as an example, uh, the economist Tim Hazeldean recently wrote a piece for The Herald saying the government should really use Kiwi Bank to undercut the big commercial banks, the ones based in Australia, really use it as a lever. Could you have published such a piece without worrying or, uh, or newsroom? Uh, I suppose you can't speak for them, but if, if they're both backing these outfits... Can you do that or would you be nervous, oh, my God, this is Kiwi Mink's business, we'd better not publish a piece like that? I think we'd publish that. I mean, the, the, the relationships that we have with our sort of ongoing partners, and to be fair, that, that's a relatively small number now um, because we have moved into this more campaign-based model. When we set them up, we, you know, 
we essentially sort of it's it's a, there's like a courage test that you you kind of do in in the process of um you know negotiating the deal where you're like you understand that who we are and what we do and you have to understand that if your ceo is um exposed at, as having you know uh Expensive wine storage. Expensive wine storage. <laughs> and that's a new story. Then we'll cover that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and and so you, you kind of have that, that conversation from the start. I mean, here's a classic example of it, right? So when we launched the bulletin, our, our sort of daily news wrap email, um, that was presented by Victor. And like, literally, I think it was the week or the week after, there was that huge storm that came through Auckland, pulled down lines all over the city. It took days to get back up. It was probably Victor's worst publicity problem since maybe around 2000 when they had the blackouts kind of thing. Like it was, it was a real doozy. Um, and it was covered in the bulletin every day. And we'd said to them, this is a news product. This is the newsiest product that we have. And, you know, that, you know, here's the reality. And they, and the fact they probably didn't, Realised it was going to be tested like, so you, immediately. So you had to give them a heads up, though, that you were uh, there would be stuff in the bulletin that might not be favourable to their business. Or... No, no, well, we'd, we'd done that from the start. I mean, we, we may have given the heads up, and I think a heads up is fine, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it is just a bit freaky being blindsided by things. But, you know, I think, and, and obviously you give them a right of reply like you, you give anyone else. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, that idea of, I think, Come to the spin-off because you love it, and if you, you know, or, or at least you find it very interesting, you want to support it uh, as a commercial partner. You sort of self-select as understanding what it is, and so to do that while also wanting to break it by sort of hamstringing it uh, around your own product would be sort of, you know, counterproductive. Yeah, it would mm. be a bit counterproductive, and and we've been very lucky that there there seems to be a group of people out there in marketing and communications who, who really do get it and. They come to us with a, a very sophisticated understanding of what we are, even though we're sort of fairly singular in the market. Um, in some ways, though, you're right to note that Newsroom operates a fairly similar model. Uh, you know that they, we, it's so it always surprises me how really those issues um, arise. And um, were any of your big ticket kind of supporters uh, at all miffed about the fact that you're also opening this up to individuals? Hey, that's our thing. We we want to be your backers. They don't mind that you're going out to the public this way. No, okay. I mean, a there's this historical precedent for it, and and b anything that sort of grows the spin off ultimately um, helps float their boats too. So no, they we've we've been thrilled with the support. Like there's a a, a few known trolls who reacted as, as you'd expect, but for the most part the response has been really, really gratifying, especially with, like, I was basically fetal position on a couch at sort of at 7 o'clock on Monday with just pure fear about something going wrong because um, I'm a human and I get freaked out. And um, and so the the sense of relief that this thing has come off right is... Uh, it's, what were you afraid of? Just no one coming back and saying, yes, I'll sign up? Unknown unknowns. Like okay. whether it was a technical thing, whether it's something yeah. I hadn't thought of in my essay um, to launch it, whether it was no, you know, opening our party doors and there not being anyone there. <laughs> There's so many, you know, I, I was catastrophizing in the worst way. Like, um, but, you know, because I hadn't realized I hadn't felt like that since the very start of it, you know, and, and that was kind of exciting because, you know, again, to return to the startup thing, it's like 
that sort of risk and the the, the sort of nerves and anxiety and exhilaration uh, and you know that's that's kind of why you do it. It's kind of why it's different to being in a, in a corporate. Well, um, it's, it's different to being in a corporate, but others that operate membership models, things like consumer, for example, um, different, completely different kind of model, but partly publishing and you know, offshore, you've got the Guardian and others. Mm. Um, they're like trust-owned cooperative type outlets. Yours is a business. Um, does this membership thing make it actually less likely that at some point you could, um, if it gets a bit of scale, just sell it to NZME or a bank or something that wants a content division? I mean... When I started the spin-off, I, I assumed with colossal naivety that we would that the most likely outcome was that we would run it for a few years, and that um, you know if the, all things going well, that one of the other media companies would go, oh, that's a cool thing, we'll we'll buy that and slot it in the way you know that a a Bauer or a, you know a, a sort of Fairfax has assembled their their um, their empires kind of thing. I thought that that's how it would work, and. I sort of realised that this is a different era. Like the media companies aren't in acquisition mode; they're in sort of fighting to survive mode. Mm. And but the other thing that happened was that I sort of loved our independence, and and I loved our group of people and how we were making this together. And um, uh, it, I genuinely don't think about whether it makes us more or less acquirable. Um, I think it what it does do is is make it you know hopefully you know in, in the long term this has the potential to transform our business because i think the, you know there, there's, there's a world where we have 10,000 or or you know 50,000 subscribe uh, members and in that case the number that matters is the revenue derived from them and the strength of the compact you have together and the commercial side of the business is great that's how, that's how you sort of you know run your business and hopefully make your profit kind of thing but the day-to-day sort of core operations of it like there, there's a chance that the tail becomes the dog because right now all of us live in analytics you know we're always constantly looking at our number on site, that uh, page views, and that, that those become the metrics that dominate um, your mind. But if you start to look at, like there's a, um, maybe it's like the San Jose Mercury, there's, there's some US newspaper which sort of runs a, uh, a similar kind of, I think maybe theirs might actually be a soft paywall, but the number that matters to them is how many uh, subscriptions or, or memberships, I forget which it is, did a story convert. And that might be, you know, they, I think they found that a story on climate change might do a tenth of the numbers of like a big splashy kind of social media How would media they know hit. which story converted the reader? Because you can tag, and we, we already have this facility through Press Patreon or some custom development that we did to, um, to know which story they were reading when they started down the funnel to, um, to becoming a member. So that we've already, we've known that for a, a while now, um, with the long form fund, so that that that's now their hero number. That's the big number that's on screens in their newsroom, and and I'd like to think that that you know ultimately will get to where we are. So in that way, the reader response to story starts to direct um, editorial in a way that feels like it encourages the best of you in in some ways. Now so that's not without its dangers as no, well. You should publish a story that says. Ten reasons why the Greyland Five Hundred suck, and then see how many people. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, th- that's the thing. I think there's this been this idea that the old media 
um, was this golden age and that the new media is kind of beset by all these kind of different sort of frailties and corruptions. I'm currently reading The the, the Powers That Be, Halberstam's sort of history of, you know, those, those sort of big four um, US media companies, New York Times, LA Times, uh, C- CBS and Time. And, you know, the the level of sort of venal, self-interested publisher control of these titans of journalism that existed through that era was extraordinary. And the level, the, the way that you know, the LA Times was a declared Republican newspaper that essentially chased unions out of the city and, and you know, literally wouldn't even cover the existence of a Democratic candidate as, as recently as like the late 50s. And, you know, so, so journalism essentially has always been, you know, a set of compromises. And within RNZ, it might be the sort of the scope of the budget or the location of its head office, you know. And obviously, there are levels um, that sort of interact with that. And, and there are some which is where it's just a nightmare, you know, why I will be hooked was, was kind of a problematic site. But but I think that what we're all trying to do is, is navigate through that and, and build something that feels to us like the most sustainable and the, and the least compromised. And, um, you know, I I really like what members allows us, has the potential to, to allow us to do. And I think the more... I mean, ultimately, this is a pool of money which we don't have to ask permission for in the same way that we do with with some of the other um, the the other the rest of the commercial model. And to have agency uh, over some aspect of what we do, or a greater sense of agency over what we do, is it just it's tremendously exciting. And the bigger that we can make that pie, the more independent we can be. And that's not to malign our commercial partners in any way, but. When a marketing manager leaves and we lose a contract, that that has an Im- impact that we can feel. And members is just going to be a different; it will have a totally different dynamic to it. And uh, just talking about the journalism a, a little bit more, seeing as you've raised it, um, another interesting comment in your piece announcing the members scheme. We also see clouds gathering and bursting elsewhere in the world, and we want to do what we can to ensure that some of the malign influences impacting other democracies have light shone on them should they rise in New Zealand. That sounds dark. <laughs> what are you worried about? Um, it's also a bit purple, that prose. Probably one or two adjectives too many. Um, well, this is you, you, it's a, it's a, not an article, it's a recruitment uh, piece, so fair enough. But, um, but what is it that you're talking about there? I guess I see the way that the media ha- has operated, particularly in the, U- the US and the UK, but actually also in a number, you know, like in uh, the Philippines and, and in, in Singapore, where it becomes, it can become very close to the state or it can break into quite kind of almost viciously antagonistic partisan forms. And there's something about being an independent outlet and you know, in a relatively small one that where you can kind of control the pieces that allows you to call those things out when you see them. For example, like um, uh, John Tamahiri's, you know, promoted tweets uh, um, attacking Simon Wilson that, that we reported on. The New Zealand Herald journalist who yeah. uh, re- reported, called him out basically on his making of Auckland Transport, particularly an election issue that was the basis of that. Yeah, and, and you know, in some ways that's like an entertaining spat and... and you know, I I kind of enjoyed it for what it was, but also the idea of um, politicians kind of demonising the media um, in a sort of sustained way 
you know, has it has a corrosive effect on sort of faith in, in our institutions. And I think a responsible media um, that that is trying to tell that story in a sophisticated way can can act as a bulwark against it. And do you want to send out a signal to would be members or just your readers that actually these things we're we're concerned about them and we want you to know that. We'll write about them. We'll draw attention to them if, if we see them happening. Yeah. yeah. And look, you mentioned the Philippines. Quite interesting. One of the outlets that have been mentioned, uh, the Rappler, um, run by um, Maria Ressa. Maria Ressa. One of the greatest people on earth. Mm. And now uh, I know a little bit about them, not a whole lot about, but they do depend very heavily on uh, people in the Philippines donating to them to keep them going, to keep them pushing back against a government that's very hostile to them. A um, couple of other type startups, ProPublica and the USD Correspondent and the Netherlands have also been mentioned in connection with this. Have you drawn inspiration or literally in a nuts and bolts way from the programs they have in place to engage and um, harvest money from their online readers? Yeah, so I've been very fortunate this year to um, – I've been up to two conferences. Um, one was Google's Newsgeist and um, – Singapore in March, and the other was Splice Beta, which is a sort of a festival of Asian uh, sort of media startups, in, uh, which was in Chiang Mai in, in April. And uh, the, the latter one I was uh, generously supported by the Asian New Zealand Foundation, so I should plug them for that. But what it was, and there was a lot of uh, the same people attending. In fact, Maria Ressa spoke at and was just a regular delegate at uh, Newsgeist. And so that was it was just kind of extraordinary being around someone who's you know she's I think she's had been arrested six times and she was reasonably confident when she flew home she'd be arrested again and it actually does give you perspective that you know we sort of think that things are hard here you know you've got to struggle to make a buck and I was she a, once told me that she they utterly depend on individuals supporting them financially and, yeah and but not in a member they they actually only launched their membership program in December of last year and it's still relatively nascent. The, the individuals who have supported them historically have been more in a brown paper, paper bag style okay. or, or in a, like, you know, I believe in the mission kind of way. And, um, in fact, uh, Kirsten Hahn from uh, New Narrative, that's basically how they get funded. Is They're, they're a, um, an outlet in Singapore uh, who... I mean, Singapore is a really constrained environment. It, it has It's kind of extraordinary in a lot of ways, but... You know, they within six months of starting, they were in front of a select committee, and and they are not allowed to operate as a business in the country in which they all live. Um, well, the biggest media outlets are all effectively state owned mm-hmm. or, or controlled anyway. And um, so, you know, and she's very much like, yeah, we we get people coming to meeting us in dark alleyways, handing us brown paper bags full of money, and that's kind of how we sustain ourselves. And and so, but they also, I mean, they, new narrative I think has one of the most sort of sophisticated. Uh, sort of, it's, it's half paywall, half half membership. But their members transcribe podcasts, translate stories because they obviously there's dozens of languages in the region. Um, you know, they it's the way that they run their business is is, uh, is so sophisticated in terms of the way that it involves its audience, and that's where you know I'd love to think that we could um, sort of learn from people like that. And you know, like uh, the, yeah, there were people who I was sitting at a table with, like not no bigger than the one you and I are at now, who'd um, uh, who'd been in prison for 10 years just for running a magazine. 
and the first thing, and he's and this guy Sonny, I, I forget his surname, but um, you know, came, came from uh, Myanmar, and and the, you know, it was like the whole time I was in prison, I was just excited. I was working on my vision for my next publication. You're like, you know, and and all these countries are sort of sub hundred on the press freedom index, and to see that the energy and the creativity that they bring to both the business and the editorial, that was just an extraordinary thing. And, and the best thing about it in some ways was to get out of the New Zealand media environment because it's sort of, we all paying attention to the same things, feeling the same uh, forces acting on us and you kind of go up there and you're like, okay, this is just <laughs> clearing my head. Yeah, and indeed there's that splice organisation you mentioned, I think they have a goal of actually trying to support and foster 100 new startups across the Asia-Pacific region. I mean, do you think there is actually a, a network like that? I mean, there will all be individual small operations that some will grow, some will die, but do you think there is the possibility of some sort of pan-Asia-Pacific network of startups doing really effective work? Oh, inevitably. Like, you know, I keep in touch with Kirsten. There's... Um, a publication called Magdalene, sort of like a feminist publication out of Indonesia, which, um, you know, who I met, well, I heard her speak and some of the challenges she sound, she was confronting in terms of commercialising her business with things that we'd been through, but we'd been just been doing it a bit longer. So I sort of exchanged contact details with her and I've sent, sent her a bunch of materials. So, you know, it already feels like it's starting to, to happen, like, that I now have relationships with a bunch of these um, businesses and you kind of do what you can to help one another because you're effectively doing the same thing. You're in industries that are dominated by these very well-established companies with you know hundreds if not thousands of employees and you're trying to do something different and the information sharing, the lack of competition um, that you have amongst one another, that you know, the, the sort of mutual self-interest of willing yourself into believing that this is actually a real thing like it's it's a it was actually that was one of the most um sort of uh, uplifting things about it was that sense of of kinship with you know and and just pivoting away from just looking at the english speaking media world which all operates in a particular way and towards you know the asian one where they i felt weirdly closer to them than i did do to um the sort of australian us english media because the you know, the, I guess the dynamics that are acting on our company feel more similar. And finally, and, and just to bring it back to where we started, the members will get exclusively the one thing that, that won't be available to people that don't pay is this international version of um, your bulletin uh, wrap of, of news. Um, will that carry information and, and news from some of these outlets you're talking about? It, w- it won't just be big names in international media or big international stories that you're talking about. And that's one of the things you want to use the scheme to harvest to, to um, you know, to expand the scope of what you do. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I I love about the way that Alex has run the bulletin, actually, is that he'll put stories in from Farmers Weekly and from Politic and you know, the Southland Times. Like He, he reads very broadly um, within the New Zealand media context. And and I think he very deliberately does that in, in a way that you know stops it becoming basically a, a digest of whatever NZME stuff and and you know TVNZ and, and MediaWorks have put out the previous day. And you know I, while he's a an enormous economist fan and and we all sort of read the New York Times and and, and what have you, there's no doubt in my mind that that he will bring 
a sort of a broader global perspective. I think what he does is where there's a, a story that affects a particular region, he goes really deep down the rabbit hole to find the place that actually holds the, um, you know, is closest to the story, and that's where I think they'll come through. That was Duncan Grieve, the editor and founder of The Spin-Off, which this week launched a new membership scheme asking readers to contribute money and also ideas.